The shit out there now ain't like it was when we was coming up. Back in the day, punk nigga like Marlo steps out, breaking the rules and shit, he find himself in the back of a car trunk on the way to Lincoln Park. No doubt. Omar gonna come in your store, stick it up, rob you. You gonna call the police, make a report. You know when he get out, he's coming right at me. I ain't scared of nothing. I'm just saying, you know? I ain't gonna get out. Ain't no, ain't no need for physical You content. got four dollars for me? I'm sure four dollars. What the fuck are you talking All right, man, so we are inching toward the halfway point of season four. We're now in episode five, termed Alliances. Um, you know, I just realized right before we started that this uh, season has 13 episodes. I always said the last uh, season that had 13 episodes was season one. Um, mm. see, yeah, season one had 13, season two had uh, 12 and uh, season three also had 12, and now we're back at good old number 13. So I wonder if there was any particular science behind that. I'll have to look that up. Um, but nevertheless, here we are uh, at this point. We're starting to get some major traction and some storylines, starting to get an even deeper peek at these kids' lives, which I think is what powers this into being the best season of The Wire. Um, what were some of your major takeaways from Alliances? Just a lot about the work, kind of about, we see people going through their processes here. Uh, and, you know, we've seen episodes like that in The Wire prior to this, but this one seems to be really about that. We see, um, you know, Presbo, kind of how he's figured it out in terms of being a, a teacher and what his version of his classroom looks like. We see him coming up with a system, his own little system within his classroom to kind of get his kids uh, to focus and try to learn. We see Marlo kind of going through that same thing as far as his hunt with Omar, how he's going to come at Omar, what he's going to do, like what he's trying to, uh, the, the ideas that are bubbling around in his head as far as how he's going to figure out, how he's going to figure out how to get back at him for being robbed. Of course, Carcetti is deep in the throes of this, uh, taking every meeting, raising every dollar, going through every single inch of Baltimore to try to get the support he needs to unseat Royce. And we see Bunk and Freeman. Uh, Bunk and Freeman. Freeman, who is determined, he just, his mind just won't believe that Marlo isn't dropping bodies. So through Freeman, we see all the places that bodies normally get dropped in Baltimore. And he inspects them. He goes and he, he detects through them as, as, a, as a crack detective. And you find out that this new regime in West Baltimore has a different, more secretive, uh, tougher to figure out way of doing things. However, there is one group, like it always exists in the hood, that knows exactly where these bodies are. Right, exactly, because the streets be knowing all the time. <laughs> they're, the, yeah. they're the best reporters, the best detectives. They know where uh, all the bodies are buried, in this case, literally. I'm glad you used the word systems because I definitely see people on an individual and therefore a broad level kind of clinging to systems that either don't work for them anymore or developing new systems that do work within already dysfunctional systems. You know, the political machine in many ways in Baltimore is very broken, but you see Carchetti maneuvering that 
mm-hmm. very well and to his benefit. Even on the street level, the kids, they have developed their own organized system in the way that they do things and how they deal with balancing the world of withering innocence with the harsh realities that are indeed around them. Prez is slowly trying to figure out a system for his classroom with kind of mixed, you know, a mixed bag of results. So I I definitely think and that, you know, that's the intention of The Wire overall is that they want us to take a hardcore look at systems and institutions to see and understand their failures and how by them having these systemic failures, how it leads to failing the lives or ruining the lives really of a a lot of people who depend on these particular systems to work in order for them to thrive and and to be successful. So definitely there are some people who are, you know, pocket passers and who are able to freelance outside the pocket and outside the system and some that are not, which is kind of evident in this episode as well as this series as a whole. But let's get to the recap of what happens here in alliances. So Valchek gives Karketi some very valuable tea uh, when he tells him about Kima being moved on the dead witness case, uh, proving that Royce is trying to interfere with this investigation for his own uh, political gain. And speaking of Royce, his campaign is going down in flames, much of it due to his own arrogance. He's lost a huge grip uh, on his support. He berates Burrell for stalling the investigation, which he wanted him to do. And then he finally pisses off Odell Watkins. Like when you piss off Odell Watkins the way that he pissed off Odell Watkins, like that's a bad sign, right? Odell rolled out of there with fire and fury. He left skid marks on Royce's office floors. He was out of there. I, that was one of my favorite scenes. Yeah. I loved that scene between those two guys. You basically heard the skirt like when mm-hmm. he got up out of there because he was heated. Also on the political front, Rawls, he plays the political game perfectly. You know, um, he makes sure that he tells Carcetti about Odell Watkins, gives him that Intel, and he also covers for Royce, which basically makes him invaluable to whoever wins the mayoral race. Like he's in good no matter what. Unlike smart, Burrell, move. smart it, it, it was a just a, a king chess move that he did uh, because now he's in good position either way that it goes down. Uh, as we mentioned a moment ago, Prez is he's continuing to try to reach these kids. You know, we're used to Prez figuring out puzzles and making mm-hmm. sure the pieces fit and trying to to really break down how something is organized. And these kids are proving to be a great challenge, but I think you see the signs of him kind of finally getting it. You know, he starts with this behavior merit system, which only leads to a bunch of kids being in detention and then he, he lets them go. And, you know, there's a little bit of a, a mixed success there. You know, the, he has to witness this meltdown by Naaman and Zenobia, but he also gets an unexpected apology from uh, Naaman as well. So he's starting to kind of figure out that these kids are dealing with so much outside of the classroom that focusing on school is is kind of impossible. And so he's right. he's finally understanding the connective tissue that's there. Uh, Bunny is making some headway and helping to create an academic system <laughs> uh, within this program that he's a part of to get to the root of why there are so many problems in this educational system. Chris and Marlo hatch a very clever plan to get revenge on Omar by uh, Chris uh, after Omar, rather, robs Marlo's car game, Chris, Chris beats up old face Andre, 
kills a delivery woman, all to frame Omar for murder. Randy growing increasingly paranoid about his role in Lex's murder, even though Daquan takes Randy and Michael inside the row houses so he can prove to Randy that these are not zombies. They are dead, dead. That still is not enough to quell Randy's growing fears and paranoia about how this will all eventually come back on him. So Randy, uh, like my show does a great job in this episode as Randy, a great job. Randy's perpetual fear the entire episode, uh, it, it's palpable. Like you, it, it's I, you I feel it. Absolutely. Yeah, I said I should have said palpable. It's palpable the entire time. Everyone else is trying to jump. And you think about that when you when you're talking about these kids and you're talking about some of the mental health issues that people that come from situations like this might have. Think about the fight or flight that Randy is in this entire episode. This entire episode, his anxiety is turned up on ten. You know, when um, Chris and Snoop come to talk to Mike and they finally made their play, which we're going to talk about, think about how scared Randy is that uh, that discussion is about him. Terrified. So great job. Great job by, by Maestro in this episode. Uh, great writing for Randy as well. You also have, along those same lines, Chris and, as you said, Chris and Snoop, they are recruiting Michael. And at the same time within their organization, Prop Joe finally gets what he wants and bringing Marlo into the co-op. He finally, he's, you know who he reminds me of? And you, as somebody who watched Game of Thrones, you tell me if this is an appropriate comparison. Prop Joe is Varys from Game of Thrones. Yeah, he is. He, yeah. I, 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 he is. There's also a tad smidge of Littlefinger in there. Mm. Just in the scheming and the conniving and the kind of being everywhere. Not really, because he's not really the, as devious and as fucking a, just a goddamn son of... Littlefinger was a fucking... He's a horrible a, guy. Like, he has a fucking piece of shit. Like, you, you know what I mean? But like through and not through. The, but as far as the mind, you know, Littlefinger had nothing else except for that. Wasn't great with a sword. And so... You see a little bit of that, too. But Varys also works as well because he hears everything, knows everything, you know, the whole deal. Well, the reason I said Varys is because even though Varys was obviously a, a gossiper, he was somebody who used information to bolster himself and make himself invaluable. But there was a part of him that had a conscience that kind of at least he developed and got to a point where he was using it. Honestly, the information and the intel and his influence for what he thought was best for leadership, what the was realm. best for well, every, he, yeah for the that realm. That was his thing. He always yeah. talked about how he had no personal alliance to anyone. Right, his alliance was to the realm, and when nobody else was thinking about the realm, when everyone was thinking about their own personal political gain, his job was to think about what was the best for the realm because he represented one of those people that can easily get forgotten when everyone else is playing the Game of Thrones. And to a degree, I even agree with you more now because that's kind of how Joe is, right? Joe is thinking about the co-op, the collective, and all of the things that go on around that. And he feels like what's best for them is best for the game overall. So I see that it's even stronger now. It's actually a fantastic comparison. Yeah, because, uh, you know, Joe, obviously, he's going to always try to get his cut. Always. Like, that's just sure. that's just how he's built. However, that being said, he really does want them to be able to, as peacefully as possible, sell drugs in Baltimore yeah. without 
bringing on a whole bunch of chaos. And so um, you're right. He is completely about the collective, the collective advancement of the co-op. Okay, so we move on now to our character deep dive uh, in this episode. And the character that we selected to, to take a closer look at is a bit of an enigma to me. And I think that's what makes him kind of fascinating. Uh, he's got a quiet strength and resolve, and he's also scary as fuck <laughs> as well in many regards. Um, talking about Chris Partlow, uh, that's the person that we're going to focus on for this episode yeah, Chris is terrifying in a way, but not in the usual way, not like in a Marlowe kind of terrifying way, but just like in this way that you don't know a ton about him, but what he knows, he knows, and he knows it so well that it's almost kind of scary. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know what gets me about Partlow? Like, there's, there's something dead in him. Yeah. And uh, it's played so well by Binga Akinanagbe. You know, they took so much from us that we don't even know how to pronounce our own names, man. It's sad. <laughs> but with Chris, with Weebay, Weebay was, and we always compare every hitter in the Chris Partlow fashion to Weebay, right? Think about Weebay, though. Weebay was, like, full of life. Weebay was humorous. Weebay was, it was really a job for Weebay, right? Right. Uh, not saying that he hadn't been hardened, not saying that he hadn't been augmented and mutated by his surroundings. He had been. But Weebay was like, yo, we're going to tear the roof off the mother. We're going to do this. We're going to, we love, Weebay loves to eat. Weebay loves his fishes. Weebay loves all of these things. Chris, there's something there that behind the eyes that's gone. And you wonder who took it. Like, even with the crime committed at Old Face Andres, right, to draw Omar out or to get Omar arrested or frame Omar, which is a very, very big sort of plan. Something that the bar sales never tried to do. Just frame Omar for something. Get, get one of your guys to be an eyeball witness. It's actually kind of ambitious. The thing that defines Chris's character the most to me is how absolutely cold he is to the lady that's helping him. The woman in there who's restocking the shelves, who they go out of their way, she says, thank you, calls him baby, smiles a million times, and he just deads her. All to get Omar. And there was no hesitation. There was no nothing. Somebody took something from Chris, and we're going to learn this a little while later. Somebody took something from Chris, and the only way for him to kind of fill it back up is a sense of duty and probably a sense of allegiance to Marlo. Like, Chris is more sinister and dangerous than anybody else because there doesn't seem to be any humanity in there. He's almost like Dr. Spock, in a way. Like, Dr. Spock was actually a little bit more human because he was part human. But the thing about Spock that always would, like, drive Kirk and everybody crazy is that it was all logic. So you look at Spock and you go, Spock, I love you. And Spock goes, what is love? Love is a sense of love. Shut up, Spock. Get out of here. Now think about if Dr. Spock were evil with that same thing. He just happened to have a sense of logic that, you know, he, he believed in the systems of the universe. But what if there's nothing there? There's nothing to appeal to. You're not going to talk Chris out of hurting you. You're not going to talk Chris out of doing something that, like, Chris wasn't going to see that woman and go, no, I couldn't dare her. Right? He was never going to do that. Like, he's almost like an apparition when he comes in, which makes a lot of sense to why the kids in the neighborhood 
fear him in the way that they do. They feared Weebay and everybody else in a specific way, people before. But Chris is more like the boogeyman. He's more like an actual monster, actual wolf man type of situation. And when you watch the show, especially this episode, you can see why. Yeah, Chris is definitely the guy that you know how in horror movies, especially this was this happened all the time in Jason movies and in Halloween, where people would be running full sprint, full sprint. And Jason or Michael Myers would be walking slowly and they would still be able to catch him. That's Chris Parlow. Right, you know, because finish that statement though. Finish that statement. That statement's incomplete, what you said. You said people. It's not, it's incomplete. You mean oh. there's a certain type of people. <laughs> talking about white people. White people. Yeah. <laughs> because let's okay. let's be honest. Shout out to all the white listeners away down in the hole. We love you. But let's be real. Let's be real. There are so many ways you could have got with it, Jason. So so many ways you could have got away from Michael Myers. You're running all of that. How about like Zag, first of all, running in a different direction. Hit a corner. Like, you, there's so many things that you could do, especially with Jason, who we all know is not the best swimmer. You know? It, like, yeah, it, we like all you know, know this, that, right? <laughs> we all know that that's a thing for Jason. So if you're at Camp Crystal Lake, run out into the middle of the lake, tread water. Jason not getting in there. You got a fucking hockey mask on. He's going to sit to the bottom. Like, I'm just saying, Jason, you spit me off. Freddie was different, though. Yes. Freddie, you can't help but fall asleep, right? Right. You're going to fall asleep. But Jason and Michael Myers, I feel like it was ways to escape these motherfuckers, man. Like, and it never, it never happened. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis twists her ankle, all of that stuff like that. It's just weird. It's weird. No, Trinity. I mean, and not only that, it's that Freddy Krueger was supernatural. Like, Jason and Michael Myers were not. Like, Jason Michael was Myers after was a while. A he kept coming back to life. Jason oh, kept yeah, coming back to life. Oh yeah, that's why he did keep coming back to life. He got like he got it got he he the fucking lightning struck, and then Jason came back to life, and all of a sudden he was in Manhattan killing people. So I don't know. But Michael Myers was like a dude, right? A guy. Like you could maybe, shoot him. Maybe he came back to life too. I don't know that he was ever like dead dead. Was he dead I, dead? I think what happens in these movies is these niggas start off and. They like are regular people, but then after a while, I think with both, they just of them, morph they into start, something else. I think they started coming back to life. I got, I'd have to look with Michael Myers, but you, to, I'm but sorry. your point stands. But your point stands, man. Zig right, right. and Zag. Okay, the right. ba- bottom line is you can outrun these motherfuckers. Like, okay, yeah. and by God, stop having sex because anytime you have sex, you know you did. So I don't even know why people continue to do you. that. I'll be honest with you. Every time, obviously, this is a cliche. Everyone knows this, but I'd be thinking to myself, yo, if you having sex, don't you get up real quick and be like, all right, look, we got a break. Why? Because you know that Jason is coming. This is what happens. <laughs> you would think so, you would know this. Yeah, we got to get out of here. So now you go this way, I go that way. God bless. But one of us is probably not making it back home. I hope it was good. Anyway, Chris Parlow <laughs> Chris Parlo is like one of these people. Yes, he is. Just because he has that monstrous ability that you talked about. Now, something sure. the actor... Uh, who plays Chris Partlow, uh, said in All the Pieces Matter in Jonathan Abrams' book that I thought was interesting, and I'll pose this question to you. He said the difference between Chris and Snoop, and you tell me if you agree with this, is that Chris is a sociopath and Snoop is a psychopath. And Mm. a psychopath is far easier 
to understand than a sociopath. I was like, hmm, that might be a bar. That's a word. I mean, I think that's kind of an accurate description. What do you think? I agree. I was talking to my therapist about what a sociopath is. And because I never I hear people say the word. She goes like a sociopath is someone who's incapable of human empathy. Like just no matter what you're going through, a sociopath just never fucking cares. Like there's nothing to stop them from. And that's a very accurate description of Chris. Like I get, you know, Chris, we see Chris lash out and there's a time later where it's going to seem as if Chris and Mike have a very specific connection. You know what I mean? Um, Which could almost mask empathy, but it's, or mimic, should I say empathy, but it's really more about triggers inside of Harlow himself. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's a very accurate description. And in that, I mean, when you look around the actual world that we live in, the most terrifying things are the sociopaths amongst us, people who cannot suppress their more scary and more horrifying baser instincts for the good of society. So when you have someone like that who has expertise, a gun, and loyalty to somebody like Marlo, you have the horror movie uh, villain of the hood, for sure. What's also interesting about Chris Partlow, too, is that, and I think what makes him chilling and scary, like, everything that Snoop learned, if we're going to just keep comparing comparing the two, everything that Snoop learned, she kind of learned off the streets, you know, Mm -hmm. learned how to handle herself, learned about guns. Like, she kind of was learning in real time and obviously was very self-taught and taught herself very well. The difference with Chris is that you sense based off his his discipline, the way and the methods in which he chooses to attack people, and even him hatching this plan with Marlo about how to get Omar, my sense is that there is some real training he's undergone. That's not street-level training. And it's been alluded to, and when you read about breakdowns of the wire, that Chris may have been some may have been in the military at some point because uh, he wears military military style boots. And even when they're in uh, and he wears camouflage, too. And I mean, not that that's particularly unique, but even when they're in the, the woods and they're doing target practice, the way he stands and handles himself with a gun is different than the others. Like Snoop shoots in a very street kind of way. You know what I'm saying? Good, great shot. But when you compare the difference between her and Partlow and how they how they attack folks, like you just get the sense that there's more to his story, that he's undergone some kind of training to become as deadly as he is. The other thing that's interesting is looking at his relationship with Marlo. Now, Marlo is in charge. He's the top dog. He's the dude. But there are times, well, one the person that Marlo, if he was to have something close to like a consigliere, uh, a la Tom to Michael Corleone, it's definitely Chris. Oh, that that's definitely him. It's He's definitely, definitely him. Marlo's yeah. consigliere. For, for sure. sure. And because of that, any good consigliere, and we saw, again, Tom do this in Godfather, and, and certainly we saw Stringer do this with Avon, but Chris is okay with his position, but Chris manages Marlo. Like Mm -hmm. you could see it at times that he manages him in a way like he understands how to get an idea through to him. He understands how to reach him and he understands how to if he needs to kind of bend him to his side. Just I I think the scene when the two of them are in Marlowe's quote unquote headquarters, which is outside. 
And he's trying to get him to see, don't go for this short-term solution of just running out and killing him, killing Omar and getting at him the way everybody else gets at him. And he knows that Marlo is overly concerned with his reputation. He wants to strike fear and he wants people on the street to know his name. And so he, whenever he commits a crime or does something or his name is attached to something, he wants people to know who did it. And Chris gets him very... In a very delicate way, but a very smart way, gets him to back off the ego part of this and get to let's solve the problem. And that was something that Stringer had mixed success in doing with Avon. He couldn't get Avon to get out of his feelings and get out of his ego, sometimes at very crucial moments that would have been more beneficial to the organization. And so he had to do a lot of things behind his back because he couldn't get Avon to back off a war with Marlo that he knew was going to go nowhere. But Chris, before he even goes down that road of doing exactly what the Barksdales did, he said, no, no, there's another way to handle this guy. Let's do Mm -hmm. this the smart way. And I think that was a great glimpse into even though there's a clear hierarchy in their relationship, Chris is able to communicate and get to Marlo in a way that's far more effective. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Tom Hagen and Stringer because you're absolutely right. Here's the thing. Tom Hagen wasn't really a good consigliere, if you ask me. He took care of stuff good. But remember, uh, when they were at war, Sonny basically told him, Sonny dissed him. Rest in peace, Sonny, man. Sonny was like, yo, like, just tell me how to win. Stop telling me how to, you know, tell me how to win. Like, now you could also argue, as Vito did, as Vito did, that Sonny was just a bad Don and and you should listen to Tom Hagen. But I say all that to say this. The consigliere boss relationship between Marlo and... Chris is an optimal one because they're both warriors. And this is the difference between Tom Hagen and Michael or Sonny and certainly with Stringer and Avon is that Stringer and Avon, as good as they were together, as much as they built, they weren't like-minded in their view of the streets. Marlo and Chris seem to be. As a matter of fact, the roles are almost reversed with him. Remember, Chris told Marlo that he needed protection at the car game. Marlo didn't listen. And then after that, Chris goes, told you you needed somebody to come with me? Yeah, you were right. There's very few times with Stringer and Avon that that happened. I remember Avon once saying, Stringer, your advice was good advice. We're going to do it this way, blah, blah, blah. But they seem to be more aligned in what it is that they want and how it is that they want to be. It's about strength. It's about controlling West Baltimore. It's about having everyone bend to their will. That's not what Stringer was. And that's certainly not what Tom Hagen was. These guys were businessmen who were trying to figure out how to make this go the best for business. Not saying that Marlo and Chris aren't, but Chris represents an ever-present wartime consigliere for Marlo. That's why they're so good together. Those are definitely fair assessments is that when they're, you know, you could be different but like-minded. And that's what I think Chris and Marlo are. They're very like-minded, especially when it comes to reputation and business. And anytime one gets more out of whack, in the Stringer-Avon relationship, that's where you saw the problems, where Stringer mm-hmm. was just pretty much consumed with business and just wasn't concerned about reputation. He wasn't concerned about property or, you know, real estate in terms of, like, how much territory they, they had. He was obviously concerned about real estate on the other end. And, you know, he wanted to fit into a world that Avon didn't want any parts of. And Chris and Marlo are very much on the same page about the world that they fit in, what they have to do to keep their empire intact. And so that's why I think, um, or one of many reasons why they have been 
so much more effective in establishing their and holding on to their territory, despite the presence of this co-op in a much different and better way than the Barksdales uh, were. I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, and not just because the outcome was the outcome. It's easy to say based off the results who was better. But I, I do think that Marlowe's organization is is better run than the Barksdales was. Even when the Barksdales, when we saw it at its height, I think Marlowe's organization is just much more efficient. <laughs> I think it's mm. leaner. And I think people are all on the same page because ultimately, if you think about the reasons the Barksdale crumbled, it was always over some extra personal shit. Like, personal things that never I could ever see going down in Marlowe's organization because he kept his shit in lockstep and didn't allow for as much bullshit as Avon did. Because as as, as much as Avon was deep in the game, he still cared to his detriment, a little too much about his family. Like somebody like D'Angelo would never be in Marlo's organization. That just wouldn't right. happen, right? Right. Marlo right. would have ate D'Angelo when he was a baby. <laughs> but probably so. Like, <laughs> probably would have ate him, like ate and drank his blood. I will say something else about kind of the both organizations is we're we're kind of comparing Marlo's organization on their first title run to Avon's organization on their sixth. Right. So Mar- you're, we're comparing a dynasty to... Right. You right. know, when every, everybody comes back, now you got to go out and get Dennis Rodman and you got to put all these things together. You got contract talks and all this. By the time Stringer, Avon, and the, so we really got to know them, String was already looking at having done the gangster thing for long enough and one, wanting to do something else. Now, I'm saying it's very, very unlikely that either Snoop or Chris or Monk is going to decide that they want to own all the, the the high rises around the harbor. Okay, so it's probably not going to happen. But there might be other things that that will go on the longer Marlowe holds on to West Baltimore. But their organization is lean and hungry. They are the new young regime, so it's certainly more functional than the Barksdales that we came to know. Because it's you know still to a degree it's smaller. Well, t- tell me if this comparison is completely crazy, rather than take it to, um, and I agree with you in terms of different organization. You're right. That's fair. Is that uh, the bark sales established longer, had to hold on to the territory longer, had to do a lot more I, just based off what we know to get the territory than Marlo probably had to, to, to get his. So is this like a Jordan LeBron comparison? Okay. And mm. and and by that I mean this is that obviously we already know Jordan's resume with LeBron as of the taping that we're doing this you know him being in his what tenth finals right now what I've seen this argument evolve into particularly now is not necessarily resorting to the same old kind of player argument with Jordan versus uh, LeBron but more or less a- appreciation for the different ways that they did it. Right. So Mm -hmm. Jordan's in a or not Jordan. LeBron is in a modern NBA where there's much more player movement, player movement that he frankly kind of created when he Mm -hmm. made the decision to go to Miami. So it's much more equity in the game. That's why Mm -hmm. a co-op, a co-op type of situation exists. Right. In in the wire. Right. Because there's much more equity before Mm -hmm. it was like the Barksdales, everybody else. Right. Right. That, Right. That which is more much more 
emblematic of a Jordan era where it was Michael Jordan and everybody else. That was mm-hmm. it. Nobody else that was a superstar was winning during his era, during his reign. With Jordan, obviously, Steph has won multiple championships. Kawhi has won multiple championships. But there's still something to be said about the way that he has been able to move to three different franchises and win you know, put himself in a position to win titles. I mean, he's in a position to win a a title with his third franchise. So I'm wondering, is the better comparison when it becomes between Marlowe and, say, Avon, a Jordan to LeBron, um, as opposed to maybe an uh, an organizational team comparison? Could be, because you what what happens is you look at the era before you as a player and you figure out whether or not you can still do it that way. You know, LeBron didn't come right after Jordan. He came right after Kobe, right? That's who he kind of inherited the league, inherited the league from. And you can make an an argument that as Kobe was winning championships, that LeBron James was still the best player in the NBA. Even though I wouldn't make that argument, but you could make it, right? But at some point, when in anything, right, when you're looking at the era before you and the elite people that have come before you, you have to make a decision whether or not their way of doing it is still tenable to how you want to go do your thing, right? And for Marlowe, I think it's very clear that he looked at the Barksdales and said, not only uh, am I harder than them, tougher than them, with more muscle than them, stronger than them, but the way they do it, you just can't do it like that no more. Like, the game hasn't changed. It just got more fierce, right? So if the game got more fierce, then we got to be more fierce. Probably less family, more killing, less sort of camaraderie, less gentleman type shit, less all of that. Don't get me wrong. The Barstales were hard and they were sinister, but there is absolutely zero heart in what Marlo and them do. And there's absolutely zero heart in Chris Parlow. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the different approaches is meaningful because right. it's, uh, you know, Jordan or, or LeBron, by the time this is all all done, if he doesn't all already, I mean, I think he may have the the highest player efficiency rating in history, and I I mm-hmm. I, I I'd circled that word efficiency for uh, for a reason. Is that Marlowe took the the blueprint and he changed it and adapted it to to modern times, and in the sense that it was murders that were always getting these other drug regimes caught up. Now you right. don't have to worry about that because he's figured out a system to hide the body. So literally, the police have no idea about how he's able to maintain an empire without murders. It's perfect. Everyone knows that he's killed them. So he still has the rep, but nobody knows where they are. Exactly. he's figured a way around it. It's it's perfect. Yeah, and then even, you know, even if the major crimes unit was was still intact, you know, typically we're used to seeing them being befuddled, but only for a little bit. They usually obviously figure out something within your system that they can exploit, take advantage of, and then thus arrest you. Marlo's not leaving those kind of breadcrumbs for them. Right, like right. he's only talking in the open. He's not ta- as he likes to put it. He doesn't like to talk in, in closed spaces. Right? right. He doesn't use the phone. I mean, he's basically a shadow and a and a myth. He's never around the drugs. Like right. all those things that tend to get you caught up. He he has completely eradicated that. So nothing can really necessarily touch him and he's still able to have as much muscle and as much might as anybody else to the point where they have to come to him to get him in the co-op. The co-op needs him more than he needs the co-op. Right. And he knows that. Right. 
And yeah. so that's why his way of doing things, if I had to make an NBA comparison, it reminds me more, you know, of LeBron. LeBron, by moving teams and moving franchises, is continuing to put the pressure on the owners and the general managers to build a winner around him so that he's mm-hmm. never stagnant. He is not willing to waste 20 years in one place and allow them to practice and make bad decisions on his watch and kill his championship window. It's not right. happening with him. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, true. so he took the game and made it more fierce basically. Right. So exactly. yeah. Any other thoughts you have on uh part low that you want to add? Nah. Okay. Scary guy. Scary. <laughs> yes. He's an extremely scary individual worthy of all the, the boogeyman conjecture that the kids kind of dream up about him. All right, now let's talk about some of the best scenes and best moments in Alliance. What were some of those for you? I already talked about Delegate Watkins and Royce. Love that. The opening scene. Great scene. I really enjoy because it shows you these are just children. Lex ain't dead. I seen him creeping in the alley last night near the playground. Everybody know Lex is dead. No, there's dead and there's special dead. Yeah, Chris working that juju shit. Nah, man. What I'm saying is they zombies. Why you think he take him in the vacants? He need time to change him. You don't believe me, yo, it's on you. Yo, they funny, ain't they, Michael? I don't know about that voodoo shit, man. But Chris is definitely doing something. Yeah, man, this is serious business. So you saying Lex the zombie? Pookie, Byron, all them niggas. These are just kids, everyone. They believe in zombies, and they believe that Chris might be some kind of hoodoo man and all of that. They're just kids. But at the same time, they hear a shot go off, and they know exactly what caliber gun it is. Right, and and that doesn't scare them. They're more scared by the unknown supernatural heebie-jeebie bullshit than they are with the murder they might have just heard. You know what I mean? It's It's interesting, but they are kids. They are kids. Great scene. And to that point, man, seeing that opening scene, it got me thinking about something because I think everybody's listening and I'm sure you have. Um, I want to give you an alley-oop for a perfect Van Lathan sidebar. What was some shit that you believed as a child that, like, was totally preposterous, i.e. along the lines of zombies? (laughs) Well, there's two. One was there was this movie that came out back in the 80s or maybe the early 90s. It was called The Serpent and the Rainbow. Okay. I do remember this movie, but I don't remember what yes. it was about. It was about voodoo shit, but The Serpent and the Rainbow. It starred Bill Pullman, Wes Craven directed it. And that shit had, it was 1988, that shit had me shook. It's actually zombies. It says, by a book of the same name, he goes into Haiti to study zombies and people that were burnt alive and buried in voodoo shit. Here's the thing. This is, it is true, right, that I believed in this shit. But let me tell you why I believed in it. This is the the, the more appropriate part of the sidebar. I was fucking terrified of the serpent and the rainbow. When I say terrified, terrified of the serpent and the rainbow. Scary shit. But I would like to shout somebody out right now. I'd like to shout out my dad, okay? Because my dad was the guy that would always make anything like that worse. So I remember I'm sitting down and I'm watching The Serpent in the Rainbow. My dad came in. He had some crackers. 
and some hog's head cheese. Oh, your dad now, is a real one. If, if you guys don't know what hog's head cheese is, my dad used to taste... Jesus Christ, it's disgusting. Hold on for a second. My stomach's gurgling. It's so nasty. <laughs> it is, is so very nasty. nasty. It's so fucking disgusting. This nigga was a fucking savage. This nigga would take the, the, the <laughs> this nigga would take the, the crackers and the hogshead cheese. It smelled, it smelled like fear. He'd come in and he was, he's watching me. He sees me watching the serpent and the rainbow, zombies, dead people coming back to life, voodoo, voodoo dolls, and all of that stuff. And you know what he says to me? He goes, I'm from like, I'm thinking about it. I'm nine or ten years old. Nine or ten years old. And my father. The person in my life who basically defines truth for me looks and goes, hey, you know that shit true, right? <laughs> what? I'm like, what? He's like, all of this shit, that shit be happening. He goes, listen, I'll tell you something right now. Your mama, your grandmama, all the people from out there in Bachelor, Watson, all the people, they some hoodoos. They know this hoodoo stuff. They know this stuff. You're here in Louisiana. The people come from Haiti. The people from the Caribbean and all of that. They put stuff on their face. They hoodoos. I'm telling you, your mama know, your mama know, your grandmama know, all these people know. I didn't know that when I married them, by the way, that they were some hoodoos. It's awesome <laughs> hoodoo. I'll tell you right now, boy, you look at this stuff right here, you think that's a game. You think the devil ain't real. And by the way, I am here as a child and I am listening to this. I'm The only thing stopping me from completely freaking out about this movie is the fact that I know that it's a movie. In walks my father, my dad, who says, no, son, be afraid. Because not only is this shit real, but your mother and your grandmother do it. And he started saying all kinds of shit like, see how me and your mama be arguing? I see if your daddy break his neck or if he fall down or if something happened, some hoodoo bullshit. They'll put a hoodoo spell on you just like that. And by the way, all the living dead and stuff y'all talking about, y'all think that don't happen? They're like, go talk to your grandmama, ask her stories about the woodsmen and all of that stuff like that, old slaves and, and conjuring and shit. All of this shit you watching, the white man get it turned into a big cartoon. Y'all seen it on the TV, you know, all that stuff like that. But all of this stuff, come, that stuff real, boy. That's real. You better know Jesus. You better know Jesus. And I'm like, remember now, if you have this conversation with somebody who's 17, 18, 19 years old, that's one thing, Jamil. But you're talking to a fourth grader, okay? You're talking to a kid, dad, and that's what he did. For a long time, I believed it. And my mom, and then... My mom, I remember my mom coming to me one time because, because then Child's Play came out. Oh, or Child's right. Play had Or Child's Play had already been out. Once again, Child's Play, more voodoo shit, voodoo big in the 80s. Child's Play. And I remember saying to one of my friends, hey, that could actually happen. You could actually, that could actually happen for real. My mother was like, what are you talking about? I was like, well, daddy told me, she's like, your daddy is a fucking imbecile. Okay. How about that? Your father is a cretin. No. You're not going to be able to put the soul of somebody into a doll. Son, don't believe anything like that. There's no Jesus or no God in that. Don't listen to your dad and all of his country nigga shit. But for a long time, that's, that's how they talk. I mean, they got divorced. But for a long time, for a long time, I actually believed everything that the boys on the stoop did. 
that all of that voodoo zombie shit like that was real. It was because of the serpent and the rainbow and because my dad told me it was real. And here I thought that you would probably talk about some myths about pregnancy or sex that you had. <laughs> little, nah. did I, little did I know you would go straight to voodoo. <laughs> I'm from Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana. Yeah. People talk sense. about that shit. That People talk sense. about that shit like it's real. They talk about that shit. Maybe it is. Who knows? But like he believes it. My father believes it. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's funny. Um, even though it's obviously it's not voodoo, but c- the combination of your childhood and in- innocence, you know, that we all have with the Bible, as I learned growing up, can be a dangerous thing. Not that the Bible's mm-hmm. dangerous, but like I when I was growing up reading the Bible, I'm lit- I'm taking everything like super literally, right? Yeah. As I'm reading it, and so I thought I was going to hell. For virtually everything. Right. Virtually everything. Like, right. I was just like, oh my God, I had a bad thought. I'm going to hell. Like, I lived right. in this continuous fear that I was going to hell. And it was very real. I was saying the sinner's prayer, like, all the time. Because I just mm. thought with everything that I did, I was absolutely going to hell. I also thought you could get pregnant by kissing. I thought that was true. There was a couple of things I thought like that. I was like, and and I will say this. Well, I won't say this, but like, yeah, there, there, there's a couple of things like that that I thought. Well, I thought that you could like, because we used to call it getting it, you know, it was just basically dry humping. Oh, I thought yeah, that yeah, could yeah. get you pregnant. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Just getting it. It's like <laughs> we played hide and go get it where you basically. Oh, we used to play hide and go get it. Oh, anyway, I don't even yes. want to talk about well, hide and go I was get like, it. I know, right? Because <laughs> in today's times, it's like, right, oh my God, right, people right, would be right, like, right. what are you right. kidding? But yes, right. we used to play, we used to play hide and go get it. So I, I overstand. And by the way, for those listening, if you want a, a, a base definition of hogshead cheese because my grandmother used to eat it too. It's not actually cheese, just so you know. Like it mm-hmm. is, it's more like, it's like a meat jelly, right? And it comes from oh the head the head of a pig, which is why they call it hogshead cheese. It's a delicacy, all right? Oh, Lord all right? Jesus it, it Christ. Is that, that whenever mm. you hear people say they now, eat pig from the rooty to the tootie, that is, I promise you, hogshead cheese is involved. It's disgusting. It's nasty, dog. <laughs> so you never, you nasty. never had it, Van? Fuck no, <laughs> hell no. Like no, I know? was like, maybe I was a baby, baby. But look, I'm from the, I'm from South Louisiana. I've eaten some shit, but you can't bring some shit into my shit that blow the whole fucking house up, <laughs> and then me think that that's dope. But uh, but anyway, so like the kids, like Randy and them, I believe that. Okay, so you believe Voodoo Chris was real. I believe Voodoo was real. Chris's new talking to Michael is 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 my favorite scene. Okay, so there are scenes here. Obviously, Delegate Watkins uh, talking to Royce, uh, Carcetti and Rawls, great scene. Duke and Randy, okay, when they're talking, just Duke is so much smarter than the rest of these kids. It's amazing. Uh, Marlon and Prop Joe, great. Uh, when Bubbles gets beat, that's a huge scene and a gigantic fight away from later. Some great fight away from later in this in this one. But when Chris and Snoop talk to Michael, hearing good things about you. So you straight up, take care of your people. Not begging no handouts. Motherfucker, you hear the nigga talk to you, giving you praises and shit. You standing here looking fucking stupid. Yo, chill. Look, we always in the market for a good soldier. When we see one we like, we take care of the situation. Make him family. Look, man, I already got a family. My, my mom's and, and my little brother. Yeah, heard that. But think on it. It's my favorite scene for a couple of a couple of times. Number one, it shows just the control they have over the neighborhood, the neighborhood kids. Number two, it's it's in some way them trying to appeal to him. 
right away, you see that Snoop and Michael aren't on the same wavelength. File that away for later. But yeah, I just loved them trying, just seeing the process of them trying to bring a new soldier into their fold. It's like my favorite scene. I loved it. I've actually watched this episode and forgot how, how much I enjoyed that specific scene. Yeah, that, no, that, that's definitely a, a good one. Other scenes that and moments that I also enjoyed include uh, Prez's kind of heated conversation, uh, heated confrontation rather with Naaman. You know, my hand hurt from all this learning. You got some Tylenol? <laughs> what I got for you is detention. Oh. No, fuck you, Presvo. Oh. Fucking gimpy ass, big real motherfucker. Oh. That's it, you're out of here. It's a police stick out your desk and beat me. You know you fucking want to. That's a, a really glaring example of Naaman's insecurity. Like, Naaman, a lot of times, is just acting. He's just playing the person he thinks yeah. people believe that he should be. And he's trying to live up to an expectation based off Weebae's immense and enormous reputation. Uh, and by the way, but on that same lines... When he goes uh, to the jail with Delanda to visit Weebae and Weebae's idea of talking some sense into him. One, I have totally forgotten that Weebae has a sixth grade education. You dropped out of sixth grade. I'm like, who mm -hmm. the fuck drops out of sixth grade? Yeah. Damn. You know what I'm saying? It's like, what would have been so hard about sixth grade? You're like, you know what? Fuck these timetables. I'm out. I'm, I'm out. I'm done. Right? It's I'm like, done. damn, yeah. sixth grade? Um, mm -hmm. So him trying that to talk some... Though. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Yeah. Um, him trying to talk some sense into naming... Uh, after he was suspended from school, is like one of the worst parent to child, <laughs> like get your shit together speeches ever because he's not actually telling him to get his shit together. He's just like basically building in a bunch of excuses. And he mistakenly, because Weebae doesn't know his son at all, that he's he doesn't realize that he does not possess the heart that he does because he's like mm -hmm. oh you got it in here and it's like no he actually doesn't have it in doesn't there doesn't have it in there yeah yeah and because you don't really see him you just see somebody that you want to be a mini me you don't even understand he's no good at this at all right um so and and by the way even though i know that everybody's parenting situation is kind of fucked up with these kids in the wire i would nominate Weebay and delanda as the worst parents on the wire pretty bad although for now for now. Follow away yeah. for later. For now. Yes, yes, for now. But in this moment, I right. think they might be the worst parents on the wire. Also, you brought up Daquan. I thought it was a great scene how Prez was attempting to reach Daquan without making him feel like a charity case. Mm -hmm. So when he used the excuse of packing two lunches just to give him some food, and then he wrote out the slip of paper so he gets get something to drink. Um, right. and, it, and it was heartbreaking. Uh, the look, or rather, I should say, the look on Prez's face when the girl in class told him that the reason he doesn't have any clean clothes is because his family steals them and sells them. Right. And, you know, it was a, a very deep awareness moment, an aha moment, if you will, to borrow from uh, Oprah for Prez. My other favorite scene or moment is <laughs> Marimo getting embarrassed by executing some silly-ass drug raids. We had this as a stash house. According to the wiretap, how long ago? They move them around, you know. Zeros on the warrants, minor arrests on the designated corner, sir. They were tipped. You think? For us to come up this empty at all these locations, it has to be. This cocksucker Marlo thinks he's smarter than us. He is not. Talk about how things have deeply changed for this, this small little last dance of the major crimes unit. 
Like, Daniels had Freeman and McNulty and Kima. This dude got hurt. Good luck with that. Right, yeah. <laughs> he got right. hurt, and he is executing drug raids with no credible intelligence. And despite the fact that all he could do was um, boast about his experience, you know, getting drugs off the street, he ain't even smart enough to know that they moved his stash. So, right. what a dumbass. Yeah, he's just completely in over his head. Just a, the, an avatar for bad policing. Yes, pretty much so. Now let's move on to what age the best. You know, I was, it was hard for me to find out anything that aged the best besides the fact of children scaring the shit out of themselves. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you really don't need, although thank you, Dad, you did that for me. Kids will scare the hell out of themselves. Your mind is so young and you don't understand the way the world works that you'll sit around and talk yourself into fear. Being a kid is about talking yourself kind of into being scared of things. And being an adult is kind of about talking yourself out of the things that you talked yourself into being scared of when you were a kid. Being an adult is kind of about saying, hey, this is actually not that scary. Let me deal with this, work through this. But all of these fears and stuff that you develop and you talk yourself into uh, as you're a kid, and they actually seem like they get presented to you as you're a kid. Adulthood is kind of about getting yourself out of that. So when I saw them do that, it reminded of reminded me of the years it took for me not to be afraid of surfing in the rainbow. Yeah, I had to grow up. You know what I mean? And by the way, I'm a little bit scared like right now. I haven't thought about the movie in a long time. So uh, so no, that, that kind of age is the best. And if you're around, if you have a stable kind of uh, home life, hopefully there are adults there to tell you, you know, what's appropriate to be afraid of or concerned about and then like what's not. Well, Van, you do know that whenever you have kids, you have to do the same thing to your kids. Yeah, a little bit. Maybe not with the serpent and the rainbow, but with other stuff. Like, you got to just tell them a lie just to see how long they carry it. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Like, completely. Yeah, without a doubt, yeah. Yeah, you got to torment them a little bit. Uh, in terms of what age the best for me, when Bunk was playing Oldie But Goodie, Backstabbers by the OJs. That's that song, song is a incredible song. Uh, as Freeman was on a wild goose chase trying to figure out where the hell are these bodies that he knows are there, but he has no evidence to lead him in that direction. And along your same lines about what age the best, I had it as kids believing stupid shit and thinking it's real. Right. <laughs> right? True. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, that definitely ages quite well. Uh, anything for you age the worst? Her dropping the N-word right in front of Carve like that. So I had that as we love this show, but, but mm. what about that age the worst? Is it just like white people using the N-word in our presence? Well, it aged the worst because I didn't notice it the first time I watched it. But mm. now I was like, yo, this motherfucker is crazy. So, I mean, I don't think there was ever a time, none of my friends have certainly ever done that. Uh, I don't think there was ever a time when that would have been okay with me. But certainly now it triggered the shit out of me. Actually, he didn't drop in front of Carve, he dropped it in front of Sidner. Yeah, it was Sidner, yeah. And Sidner just like letting it fly. Ugh. So that that certainly aged the worst. And also, uh, Jay Lansman, Arby's. So, you know what? I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot to put that in. I actually had that as age the best. You are wrong really? about this. You are wrong about this. Are you an Arby's eater? Yo, I, I haven't had one. It's probably been maybe like three or four years. But whenever I get one, that shit is premium. I don't care what anybody says. An Arby's sandwich is premium. And yes, don't give me that look of judgment. Judge me. I don't care. Wow. Arby's sandwich, that shit still bangs. Still you, bangs. 
like, sister, let me tell you something. <laughs> I know you, you call me way, sister is real. <laughs> you have made way too much money in your fucking life to be driving around a Maserati eating some fucking Arby's. You go get yourself a premium sandwich. You can eat a cheap hamburger, but you can't eat a cheap sandwich. Dog, cheap, dog that shit don't hit the same. That Arby's, that Arby's sandwich hit differently, man, with them curly fries. The curly what? fries are good. I'm not going to lie about the fries. Like, you the fries tripping. Oh, you know who else's fries are banging now? Mm. It's going to sound stupid. KFC, man. You lying. KFC got some new fries. Okay. And I, t- I tried the fries. And the fries at KFC banging. They good. They banging. Arby's, though, we have the meats. Look at John. Look at <laughs> our, our, our producers. Jonathan says, facts. And KFC fries is off the chain. Facts. They banging. I'm, I'm telling you, y'all, y'all, they banging. I need to investigate. The last fast food intel I got, which I, I, I went to investigate on my own, is the spicy chicken nuggets at McDonald's. They for real. I haven't had them yet. It's still not as good as Wendy's. Spicy chicken nuggets. But like... They, they they legit. They're definitely legit. Oh, by the way, I wanna I wanna call something out just so people know. I get to my eating in the wire theory. Landsman is the exception. People right. keep saying because he's all eating Landsman, in every fucking scene. All he eats in every scene, and, and it's Landsman, a part of his character to kind of be, yeah, right. Like Landsman yeah. is the exception. I, I I get that, but those are the things that age. Yes, worse. but 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 yeah, your your point still stands with that one. Now, see, I had it filed under the hurt dropping the N word as a we love the show, but because Sidner did actually react because as soon as he said it, look at Sid, go back and look at Sidner's face because he's like, did this motherfucker just? So the part of that, and this is why they're surveilling Marlo after he dropped this video camera in there, the part of that that is hard to comprehend or that I wonder if, if, this, if this would happen this way in real life is that Sidner ultimately is more upset about the fact that he's been watching Marlo for hours than he is her using the N-word. I just cannot see those two alone in an right. enclosed space Dude just dropped the N-word and it ain't no conversation. Like, it's yeah. no like, hey, motherfucker. Like, it's nothing other than him yeah. just giving him a dirty look and then that's it. It was like, uh. And I, I think to my recollection, and I'm sure our our listeners would will correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's the only time I've, I heard, heard in the course of the series ever use that word. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard him use it before. Yeah. And he's clearly imitating, you know, the lip reading and trying to figure out what the conversation is. So in a way, it's somewhat organic, but I just thought that the way that was just kind of glossed over, like, everybody would be cool with that going down. I could see in a group setting where he might feel outnumbered, like, all right, this ain't the time to pick my battle, but it's just those two? I'm like, yeah. I don't know about that. I don't know if it yeah. goes down that way. I'll say that much. Um, so, yeah, uh, obviously both two things that, uh, uh, both something that we, you know, kind of recognize in this. All right, let's get to some File This Away for Laters. What did you have, man? Snoop and Michael, Father's Way for Later. Big one. The camera <laughs> with Marlo. Huge and one. Her huge one, Father's Way for Later. The dead body itself uh, that they found in there, Father's that Way for Later. It's a bunch of them in there. Uh, a bunch of Father's Way for Later moments. Some of them I've already talked about. As far as the ones I've already talked about, those and then the ones I just named. Mm. So some of the ones I have uh, include Peep, 
the opening scene um, in this because when all the kids are gathered around and talking about zombies, Canard is there with them. <laughs> mm. Yes. So uh, put a circle around that guy. Um, uh, you mentioned video camera. Oh, Randy's decision to take $5 to be the lookout for the two boys. Yeah, hell yeah. I I, I can't believe I, I, I That's a I huge one. that one. Yeah. Uh, who uh, engage in a sex act with a fellow classmate. And just in general, overall, Randy's entire paranoia about the role he played and what happens to, to Lex, that becomes, that is basically solidified into the storyline for Randy's character. A little bit of trivia. So Landsman, when he was talking to Kima, after he told her she was uh, now to be relieved of the dead witness case because uh, she's caught up in this political black and forth, he makes a reference to somebody named Major Forrester being in the hospital because the chemotherapy isn't working. Forrester is played by uh, an actor named Richard DeSantis, who unfortunately was actually sick in real life and did die, um, I think, before the end of The Wire was over. So that was actually a real reference to somebody who was playing that particular character. Um, now on to uh, the moment of truth, Van. Who won this episode? I would say Randy won. Mm. Um, the reason why I say Randy won is because Randy, to me, did most of the emotional heavy lifting in this episode for me. So it was all eyes on Randy the entire episode for me. I, I would say that Randy won. Yeah, he was really spectacular in this episode. For me, Rawls was the winner of this episode because, um, you know, Rawls is a survivalist, right? Okay, and I thought he pulled a terrific chess move by making himself invaluable to both Carcetti and he made himself invaluable to Carcetti without costing himself loyalty points with Royce. So he's mm -hmm. playing both sides against the middle, um, that doesn't often work well in The Wire or for that matter in real politics, but he did it very um, smartly and in a way that's going to pay dividends for him. You know, Burrell, just real quickly, is on the outs and he's like dead to Royce now. Mm -hmm. And that puts Rawls in a perfect position either way it goes. So by sharing that intel with Carcetti and then cleaning up a mess for Royce, uh, Rawls, to me, was definitely the one who uh, was able to benefit the most politically in this episode. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us. Thank you all once again for... I love uh, you, Dad. <laughs> yeah. Van's dad is somewhere like, that damn boy that told everybody that I still believe in voodoo. He's like, it's true, damn it, it's true. Uh, all right. I'm going to make sure that for Christmas I send you a Ouija board, man. Um, well, okay. <laughs> I rebuke it. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for us. Keep watching The Wire and keep listening to us. We'll see y'all again next time. <laughs>